construction crew members on the roads, and the officers stand by just to keep an eye out. 68 and Stephanie Drive. 68 and Stephanie Drive. One second. And back to tra uh, traffic. Everything's looking like it's moving along okay in and throughout the Monterey Bay area. Nothing major for me to report this hour. 70 forecast is currently 66 degrees at the KSO station. Increasing cloud cover this evening. Lows into the 60s. Thursday, cloudy as well. Highs in the 70s. Thursday night, partly cloudy. Lows into the 60s. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, out into Monday, mostly sunny skies. Highs in the 80s. Partly cloudy skies at night. Lows into the 60s. Free boaters. No major advisory in effect this evening and nothing for me to issue for tomorrow. Now, with that said, we got Aaron Cloudon with Healing Journeys this evening. Sorry, Aaron. I, I usually have an opening tune there for you, but your caller was coming through. How you doing, Aaron? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks, Nick. Uh, All right. And so uh, I'm assuming, James, you're here with us as well. I am indeed. There we go. Great, James. So uh, James Fox is with us this evening. He is the founder of the Prison Yoga Project. Uh, James, could you tell us a little about what the Prison Yoga Project is? Yeah, we are a, uh, a grassroots community organization that brings uh, yoga and mindfulness practices into prisons. And we do that. Um, across the U.S., uh, particularly we started out in California, but we do it across the U.S., and we actually have programs outside of the U.S. And what inspired you to create uh, the Prison Yoga Project? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I never had it on my, on, on my radar. Uh, what happened was, in 2002, after I had become uh, certified as a yoga teacher, let me go back to 2000, I started working with youth at risk. I was never interested in teaching yoga in a yoga studio. So I started working with youth at risk and in residential treatment facilities and in juvenile halls. And then in 2002, I was invited to go into San Quentin and start a yoga program at San Quentin. And this was all voluntary. I started out by volunteering and going in and teaching classes. And the more that I got involved in the work, the more that I realized, oh, this is it. This is my calling. Wow. And so over several years of experience, of teaching classes at San Quentin. I wrote a book for prisoners called Yoga, A Path for Healing and Recovery. And if anybody's interested, you can, you can purchase that on our website. Um, and I raised money so that I could send that book free of charge to any prisoner who wrote to me asking for a copy. And how many so, of those have you sent out now? Since 2010, over 35,000 copies. Awesome. 
and they've gone all over the United States to prisoners all over the United States. And I was somewhat surprised, actually, that yoga was that popular with prisoners. But, of course, it made a lot of sense because if you were if you were able to give a person a guide for a yoga practice, and a lot of the feedback I got from prisoners who received the book was, wow, this is really a concise introduction to yoga and you're providing different uh, practices, asana practices, as well as meditation practices and breathing practices. And so the, everything in everything in prison spreads by word of mouth. Okay. And if there's anything good that's happening, it spreads by word of mouth. And, and so that's how, that's how the book spread. And that's really how the program has spread. So when you first went in, you said you were asked to come in, had anybody been doing yoga for incarcerated <laughs> people previously, or were you the first one? No, no, I was the first one who went into San Quentin with a yoga mat tucked under my arm. And that was, that was, that was quite an experience. I was just about um, to ask you, what was that first time like? Was there a lot of anxiety around it? What, what was going, what, what were you feeling and thinking at that time? Well, I was, I was nervous. I'd never been in a, a, a prison before. And, but I was determined to actually bring the practice into the prison. So my my nervousness was mitigated by my clear intention to do it and, um, and it it just so happened that when i went into the prison i immediately walked out onto the prison yard i had to cross the yard to get to the classroom where i was offering the class okay and so i was all of a sudden i was out on the yard and i was exposed to a whole lot of prisoners who were on the yard. So as soon as I walked on the yard, I was getting cat calls and everything about what's that under your arm. And I, I won't use all the other words that I heard. <laughs> right on. Um, and then, and so that was the prisoners. Now the other, the other issue was the staff at the prison. Okay. The guards and the custody people at the prison who were like, what are you talking about? Yoga, bringing yoga into this prison. Now, you know, this was 19 years ago, and if I were to fast forward today, it's quite a bit different, but right. it was very challenging, and I'm fond of saying that the five bravest prisoners in San Quentin came to my first yoga class. <laughs> awesome. That's yeah. super cool. What, what like, uh, security hoops did you have to go through? Is it just a, a one-hour class? I mean, how much time of yours is taken in order to teach one class? Oh, I'd say average is about three hours because okay. um, my class and our classes that we offer are 90-minute classes. Okay. So you pretty much have to figure a half hour before you get there and a half hour afterward. It's pretty typical that once you start offering a class, then a number of the participants stick around after the class and they want to talk to you about yoga or they want to talk to you about their life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of relationship building in addition to the yoga. And is, uh, there, yeah. Is that allowed? I, uh, are they regimented in regards to their time? I, I don't really understand. I don't understand necessarily how the uh, prison system works in that way. Well, it's quite interesting in that there's there are no custody staff in the room with you. Okay. Which is a good thing because that would that would really hamper the impact of of the practice. So typically I and the many many teachers that we now have teaching classes are in the class with our participants. And there's a period of time before the class begins, and there's a period of time after the class where you have the opportunity to connect with participants. And, no, there's no monitor placed on them. I mean, you have to have, you have, to have certain boundaries. There are boundaries, indeed, that, mm-hmm. hey, could you bring something in for me? No, you know I can't bring that in right. for you. And But... Most of the time, the participants are just really interested in speaking to you about their lives, about an experience that they might be having while they're incarcerated, about a difficulty that they might be having while they're incarcerated, how yoga may be helping them to deal with emotional difficulties that they're experiencing. So we typically... We run a program that lasts at least six months. So we're with a group of participants at least six months, sometimes longer than that, depending on the institution and depending on the population. For instance, at San Quentin, San Quentin is a prison where most of the prisoners are life sentenced with the possibility of parole. So they're doing long sentences. And it used to be that my class was open-ended. So if I had 15 guys in a class, the only way that they were uh, replaced would be if they dropped out of the class. Otherwise, they stayed in the class. But that changed several years ago that we we were operating on a yearly uh, schedule. So... Um, and you're still teaching classes in San Quentin. It, it, is that every week? Has that been going on every week for almost 20 years now? Well, it was interrupted by the COVID pandemic. Uh-huh. We, we started up again on June 15th, and it was closed down two weeks ago because of the Delta variant. Okay. So we were, for all intents and purposes, we were out of there for 13 months and most of our programs, so we have programs in 19 states, awesome. and most of our programs have been shut down since the beginning of COVID. So, so and, yeah. So since you started, you started teaching. Let me get this right. Was that 2008? You said in in San Quentin. Or 2002. 2002. So in that right. time, but then the program didn't expand until about. 2010 or 2011 is that correct that's correct that's correct and it's actually kind of coincides with when i wrote my book okay uh, the name of the book is called yoga a path for healing and recovery and, and when i go ahead when i wrote the book after i started sending the book out 
and realized what a demand there was for yoga, I thought, okay, well, the next step in the evolution of my work is to train teachers to bring to bring this methodology into jails and prisons across the country. So that began that began in 2010 also. Yeah, I, I remember that because I think I was in one of your very first uh, yes. teacher trainings, actually. And you I, were. And I remember you talking about the dedication of it that, yeah, maybe only one to three hours for, for the teacher, but for these guys, it's a big deal, this class, you know, with their the constriction on their time. And that really hit me because it was interesting. I, I had to really question my level of dedication because of that. It, uh-huh. it, it was interesting. Can you speak to that at all? Because I know a lot of people may idealize going to help, but this is people who are incarcerated, their time is very regimented. The time is very regimented. Um, there's also there's also a real clear distinction around that we make, meaning Prison Yoga Project, and particularly in our teacher trainings. Mm-hmm. There's a clear distinction between helping and service. When you set yourself up as a helper, you put yourself in a superior position. You put yourself in a position of, I'm the helper and people need my help. Mm -hmm. And there's an inequality that. And, of course, we're working in a system where there's gross inequality, right? Right. There's there's inequality. um, There's there's social inequality. There's racial inequality. And these people live with that. We don't want to set up a situation where we're coming in there like, oh, well, we're the yoga teacher and we're (laughs) going to help you. So we are firmly positioned as providing service. And in the gesture of providing service, it's very clear that you meet people where they are. And there's a, there's a, there's a humility around that of, Hey, put the, put the yoga teacher and all your credentials and everything aside. You're there to meet people where they are. And perhaps, provide some tools and some skills for them to use to reduce their pain and suffering. Their pain and suffering from their life before they came into prison and certainly their pain and suffering while they're in prison. So, as, as you mentioned, yeah, they have a very regimented schedule, but they're free to take different kinds of classes on a volunteer basis, all our classes are voluntary, and they choose to come to class. Right. So, aside from their work schedule, and you know, they're locked down at eight o'clock at night, and lockdown ends at probably six o'clock in the morning when they go to breakfast, and and then they usually go to work, and then probably around two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon until what they call 620 lockdown, they're free to take classes. Now, this is San Quentin, right? which is very program-oriented and very rehabilitation program-oriented. A lot of other prisons, they don't have the variety of programs that San Quentin has. So, so with that said, so during that free time, though, if, if the teacher, say, is running late, does that 
do they wait for them? Will will the prison staff still wait? Say say the prison, you know, the teacher for whatever. There's a lot of traffic in San Rafael that day or something. Do they still wait, or does that class get canceled? How does that work? Well, it depends on how late they are, and it's something that we really stress in terms of commitment and dedication. Right. That unless you're really committed and dedicated to doing this, sure, certain certain circumstances are going to arise where there's an accident on the bridge and you can't get to the prison. And if you're, I would say, 15 minutes late, then pretty much the participants realize, okay, the, the facilitator's not going to show up for the class. That's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us show up with plenty of time to spare and, you know, unless extenuating, extenuating circumstances, um, were there. Okay. And over the years, we've gotten a lot more cooperation from staff than we used to have. Okay. So they're not so quick to pull the plug and, our, and they pretty much... They pretty much leave it up to us. Are Have you guys moved into um, teaching the staff and guards as well? Have you moved on just beyond the prisoners themselves? We're getting closer and closer. That's one of our goals. Right on. Um, it's, it's very, very interesting. I would say that the old school guards that were common when I first went into San Quentin. Most of them are retiring. Okay. They're disappearing. They were much more, in fact, we used to be called hug-a-thugs by them. <laughs> oh, you're, oh, you're oh, one of those hug-a-thugs, oh, you know? Oh, my goodness. And um, the, younger, the younger generation of guards are going through a different kind of training. And I also think that they've been exposed more to um, innovative type of things like, like yoga. Mm-hmm. So we're not, we're not dealing with as much adversity as we used to deal with. Got it. It, it, it sounds like what you're describing is that like, this is true yoga in regards to the oneness of all of us for the teacher maybe maybe just as much if not more so of stepping into this room and realizing they are no different than these people that they're incarcerated with with the way your your teaching your training goes am i reading that right yeah yeah it's it's another one of our key um topics of of our teacher training which is equanimity right on so whether it's the incarcerated participants or the staff. Okay. And, you know, my greatest challenge is with the staff. It's not with the incarcerated participants. I mean, occasionally you'll have an incarcerated participant who's problematic. Mm -hmm. But it's more often that you're dealing with the issues of, you know, the prison industrial complex and everything that's imbued in that. That's so interesting because I, I wanted to talk to you about also uh, the for-profit prism system, which I know in California, uh, Newsom signed a law, I think it was about two years ago, in order to get rid of the for-profit prison system. 
Can you speak to that a little bit? Because that was a concern of mine for quite some time. It seems like a horrible for-profit to incarcerate people. just seems awful. Do you have any input in that? Yeah. Um, well, fortunately, a very small percentage of prisons in the country are for-profit. I'd say less than 10%. Okay. I mean, the biggest ones are the federal immigration prisons. And when Obama was president, he was going to pull back from any uh, for-profit prisons that the federal government was going to deal with. But that got accelerated during the Trump administration. Okay. So a lot, so particularly the immigration prisons, and then some states have opted to turn prisons over to uh, the private prison industry. And like you said, I mean, what's the incentive to rehabilitate people? They're your bread and butter. Right. If you're, if it's a for-profit prison, you want to have as many people as possible in the prison, or you definitely want a revolving door, correct? So you're not really invested in rehabilitation. We don't, we don't deal with maybe there's a couple of exceptions to this, but we don't really deal with many of the for-profit prisons. I think we deal with a couple of them in Arizona where we've been able to introduce programs. Um, I would say the Biden administration, I mean, what's in place is in place, particularly as federal prisons are concerned. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he's going to be able to pull back from that right away. Um, but it, yeah, it is a concern because for most states, their state prison system is a major part of their state budget. Right. And the, the, but the, the, let, let me just interject here that mm-hmm. the budget for the California state prison system is 12 billion. That's with a B annually. $12 billion annually is what California spends on their state prison system. And 1% of that budget is allocated to rehabilitative programming. Uh, that's interesting because you guys talk a lot about moving away from a punitive justice system into a restorative justice system. Can you mm-hmm. kind of explain what that means and, and how you guys are going about in doing that? Yes, I can. So a distinct alternative to retributive justice, which is punitive justice, mm-hmm. um, is restorative justice, which focuses on harm caused. And so the focus is not on, well, you've committed a crime against the state or you've committed a crime that needs to be adjudicated at the county. You've committed a crime against a person and that the key is repairing the harm that's been caused. So then the focus of restorative justice practices, how can we repair the harm that's been caused to the victim or the survivor of a crime? And how can we address harm caused by the offender, meaning 
working with the offender on taking personal responsibility for the harm that they've caused. So when you look at the retributive justice system and the way our justice system is set up, a person commits a crime, they get a defense attorney. The defense attorney is not going to say, I want you to get on the stand and I want you to take total responsibility for the, for the offense that you took. No, the offense attorney is going to try to get you the least amount of punishment as possible. So it's totally contrary to taking personal responsibility for harm cause. Right. So the restorative justice movement is actually an indigenous movement. It's been around for generations and generations. You could say it's tribal justice, that if uh, <clears throat> offense occurred in a tribe, the person was brought before the community, and the elders said, okay, what are we going to do with this person? How are we going to address the harm that's been caused? This particular person stole from a family. How are we going to address that? And it doesn't mean that they're going to get away from any kind of punishment, but the punishment is going to be balanced with take, making sure that they take personal responsibility. And in that taking personal responsibility, there's the opportunity for the offender to develop empathy. Nice. And understand, I've caused harm to another person. What does that feel like? And so the hope is that restorative justice presents more of an opportunity to reduce reoffending as a result of that. And do you have um, some way to work uh, in regards to your yoga classes, in regards to getting your students, whether even the ones you're working with directly or the other ones that people are working with, to actually come to terms with this, to kind of... Not not just admit guilt, but to uh, kind of feel the empathy, as you're saying, yeah. in regards to what they've done. Are are you seeing that happen, or in your class and others? Well, we we have an advantage, particularly in California, and particularly at San Quentin and some of the other prisons where we have programs, where there are restorative justice oriented cognitive behavioral programs. So the odds are the kind of person that shows up to a yoga class is involved in some of these other programs. So we can speak about taking personal responsibility. When we're teaching yoga, we can speak about how important it is to take personal responsibility as it relates to the yamas and niyamas of yoga. The ethical components of a yoga practice are very, very clear. Starting with ahimsa, right? right. Doing no harm. Do no harm. Doing no harm. Mm -hmm. So we can start with that and know that that's going to complement restorative justice principles and practices. And we can, we can infuse, by the way that we teach, we can infuse that understanding. There are ethical components to yoga. It's not just stretching and conscious breathing practices, but there are ethical components that support everything that we do that complement the behavioral rehabilitative process. 
Right. So, and the key is how do we help develop empathy through a yoga practice? And that has everything to do with developing a greater sensitivity to self. That, that's interesting because you're in, you're in a very harsh environment a lot of times for these guys. So for them to develop a practice of nonviolence in what can be a very violent world, from at least from the outside perspective, I don't know, I don't live it. Are you are you seeing guys come back to you talking about that that they've made different decisions oh, yeah. in their day to day life while incarcerated? Absolutely, absolutely, and in fact. It's it's interesting because our our ideal is that we want to have somebody in the program for at least six months mm -hmm. because we really feel that with that level of consistency, if you're doing a weekly class, that's 24 classes. Um, and with that level of consistency, you can see that the practice begins, the practice and the teaching begins to really have an, have an effect on a person. Mm-hmm. I've had many participants come to me and say, I had a run-in with a guy, which is very, very common. Right. Uh, you, you know, you can imagine if you lived in a... Right. If you, if, if you lived in a prison environment with, you know, 2,000 other guys, and, you know, you had to get in line to go to the shower and go to chow every day, and you had to deal with their playing their radios loud and wanting to go to sleep. You can just imagine. I mean, I can imagine it. Right. I have imagined it many times that I don't know how well I would react to that. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but I've had many guys come to me and say, you know what? I had a run-in with a guy, and the usual response or the usual reaction that I would have to that, to that run-in I would either get physical with the person or I would get intimidating with the person. And I shifted it. Hmm. I found my breath. I found those five breaths that you talk about. I found those five breaths that you say can make the difference between a blind reaction and a cultivated response. Wow. And they're so delighted when they actually discover I can do that 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 then begins to open up an avenue for them to strengthen that resolve. Wow. That they don't have to live by that reactive behavior that they've been involved. And these are things that we address when we teach a class. We talk about, you know, what about that reactive behavior that, you know, you feel like you've got this reactive part of your nature that you haven't been able to interrupt. Well, let's. I want to talk to you about some tools on how you can interrupt that. Nice. So you're. And having, so we talk about. Yeah. You're having them responding, responding rather than reacting. And, exactly. And and is that? I know you're dealing with a lot of guys who are in for a very long time, but in regards to the to the guys who are then leaving and reintegrating into society. Are they having? Are you getting the same feedback from them? Like, hey, now that I'm back in real life, I'm able to respond oh, right. rather than react. I'd be really curious about that because that's what prison is supposed to do. But as you're saying, the punitive justice system tends to make people harder, not 
calmer and more responsive. So if your program is doing that, then you're doing what is it's meant to to do, right? That's that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and and to be clear, the the system doesn't end when they leave prison. In fact, it's controlled by the same state prison system. You go on parole, your parole officer is part of the state prison system. Right. And the average life sentence prisoner, by the way, there are 39,000 life sentence prisoners with the possibility of parole in California. Wow. That's, 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 I think the next closest state is Texas with 10,000. So it's almost four times the other, the next, the next state. So I have been told, I, I, I have one former participant in my program who actually was in the program for seven years. Mm Mm-hmm. And he did a total of 32 years. He committed a serious crime. I, right. I, I believe it was either first-degree murder or second-degree murder. Mm-hmm. So he did 32 years. And he has told me that his post-prison parole period was much more difficult than his time while he was incarcerated. Wow. That reintegrating into society with the lack of support that he was getting from the state, with the hoops that the parole system put him through, at least while he was incarcerated, he had a regular daily program. Mm -hmm. You know, he got up in the morning, he had breakfast, he went to work, he might have been involved in in education programs. He was involved in rehabilitation programs. He was involved in yoga and he had a community of supportive people. Then he gets paroled. He ends up in transitional housing with a bunch of people who are struggling with mental health issues or addiction issues. So he's in a six month transitional housing facility where guys are using you know, day in and day out. He's getting little support in, in terms of trying to get a job. Um, and he he said, hey, going back to society was a lot more difficult than my life in prison. Yeah. So what he learned from yoga, and he has continued his yoga program. He's been out now for six years. Right on. And he has continued his yoga practice since he's been out. But what's more important and what's more important to us is what you learn from yoga, whether you ever go to a yoga class again or not, mm-hmm. it's not, a, you know, that that's not the issue. It's what you learn from the yoga, from the yoga practice that you carry with you into your life. Right. And, and those are the kind of reports that we do get back from guys who've been released. That's fantastic. Are you hearing reports yeah. from them as well in regards to healing relationships within their own family? Uh, some of it. I mean, it's that's not like a dominant response, uh-huh. but you know, some some of that happens while they're still incarcerated. Right, because a lot of these guys come from rather dysfunctional communities and families to begin with. Absolutely. Right? And that's uh, absolutely a lot of the acting out starts there. Yeah. 
have you guys at all worked with the victims at all or have you heard about the victims being able to actually not necessarily like confront their perpetrators and being able to heal those wounds in that way in regards to restorative justice so originally when i started the program at san quentin i was under the umbrella of a restorative justice organization okay and as as a result of of being under them they had a restorative justice program they had a victim offender education program and they had a violence prevention program and as their demand grew at san quentin they needed more facilitators for programs mm -hmm. so i became trained and certified as a violence prevention facilitator and a victim offender facilitator. And so what that meant was in addition to teaching yoga on a weekly basis, I would have another group of guys for a year, at least a year, minimum of a year, where we were dealing with, you know, really diving into the origins of their violence or dealing with taking personal responsibility for harm caused. Mm -hmm. Part of that program culminated with bringing in a group of surrogate victims. So not their victims, but people who had been victimized by the same crime that they committed. Whoa. So whether that was kidnapping, whether that was murder, whether that was uh, some other kind of violent crime. Mm -hmm. A group of people, and the, by a group, it was usually two or three people would come in and these were called victim offender um, panels. Okay. Now there's another movement. I've never been involved in an actual victim offender dialogue where the offender meets with particular, most likely a survivor. Mm -hmm. So it could be the mother of somebody who was murdered that they murdered right um a wife of somebody who was murdered a husband of somebody who was murdered mm -hmm. those are very very complex they take about a year to prepare both sides and um it's it's not common it's something that if you were to google restorative justice is something that is typically talked about but it's rare okay because it's so difficult to organize the surrogate panels are easier to organize okay and what happens is that there's a level of empathy that develops because part of this long-term program in working with offenders for taking personal responsibility for harm caused is that they go into a lot of the influences that led them to their criminal behavior. And if they're sitting with somebody who's been a survivor of a crime or had a relative who was, you know, impacted by a crime, they begin to develop empathy themselves for the offender. Okay. That understanding that's the kind of background that you came from. That's the kind of life that you were living. So 
so it doesn't excuse the offense. Right. But there's an opening for empathy and there's an opening for understanding. And so when and this is so, yeah. so when the offender is is no longer making excuses in spite of the fact of they've come from a dysfunctional family with drug addiction or other criminals in the family or a society of that way when they start taking responsibility and the and the victim can see them taking responsibility then is that where the healing begins is that what you're saying yeah yes absolutely absolutely and 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 that the survivor of a crime mm -hmm. or a relative of a survivor of a crime begins to see that person as a human being right and that they were victimized themselves which led them to victimizing other people right and once again there's never any kind of well that excuses what they did right but there's that Meeting and time and time again, this has been proven that this takes place when there's this kind of a meeting. So it, it sounds like just the opposite of excusing. It sounds like actually taking responsibility and ownership of one's own actions then creates the restorative process. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. It's such a big step. In working with so many offenders over the years, that step of like I'm not ta I'm not making excuses anymore. Right. You know, it's kind of commonly known that oftentimes prisoners go, "Oh, I got a bad rap. I really right. didn't do what I was accused of doing." When they cross that bridge to I take full responsibility for the harm that I caused, that's their ultimate freedom. Whether they ever get out of prison or not, right. and this is something, this is something that we stress. Hey, man, this is your freedom. This is your personal freedom. Whether you live the rest of your life in prison or whether you end up going outside, this frees you. Taking personal responsibility and stepping into that path of integrity of becoming a real man. Wow, that that's that's that that must be a, a pretty intense moment to witness, or I would imagine it's a long. Sometimes it seems like that would be a long, slow process, but I could see where yoga would help that because when you become embodied, you really learn, you know, who you truly are, especially if you're meditating yeah. as well. Well, yoga really support it. That's the beautiful thing about being able to bring yoga into an environment where there's this cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy programming going on because the two together, that's the answer in terms of rehabilitation. You see, the thing that's so frustrating is that those of us who do this work, we know what works in terms of behavioral rehabilitation, mm -hmm. but it's like, okay, then prison system, please give us that opportunity. Right. So and, yeah. when, when you're teaching uh, other teachers or um, it, do some people have like an emotional or a psychological hurdle in regards to like actually entering a prison in order to do this? Oh, yeah. I, I would imagine for me, I, I think it would be kind of difficult. I, I remember yeah. taking your training and that was... I think I oversimplified it and then taking the training and you talking about it, I was like, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that that that's good. I mean, that's part of the uh, intention of the training. I would say no more than 15% of the people who take the training really follow through and say, I, w- I really want to do this work. Right. Um, it, 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 it is intense. difficult. It is intense, and it and there are issues of vicarious trauma. Right. I mean, you're you're dealing. First of all, you're going into an oppressive environment. Prisons and jails are oppressive. Right. It's you know, and particularly when you're in the yoga world, you know, right. you're you know you're you're accustomed to going to a yoga studio and practicing <laughs> yoga, and it's 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 the antithesis. Of going into a prison, absolutely, and 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 so, the culture of a prison is so much different than the public yoga culture, and so, yeah, it 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 is it's it's definitely a dedication to social justice and extending to. The way that the way that we look at it, if you look at all of the inequalities, all the social injustices mm-hmm. in our culture in the United States, of which there are many, and which is generational, and you know when you when you look at it from a racial standpoint, it goes back to slavery. Forty percent of the prison population. Let me start by saying. of the population in the United States is Mm African-American. 40% of the prison population is African-American. About probably close to 18% of the U.S. population today is Latino. Probably 23% is prison population. So... You could look at all of the inequalities and the injustices in society, and you could look at prison as the bottom of the funnel of that. Right. That these are the vast majority of people who end up in prison as a result of having come from these inequities, having come from these inequalities, having come from these social injustices, poverty, so on and so forth. Right. And having adopted criminal lifestyles as a result of those inequalities. Now, does that excuse people? No, it doesn't excuse people, but it sets up an understanding of how it can happen, and it sets up empathy in terms of, oh, Okay, now this is this is a step beyond restorative justice, which is called transformative justice, where we're looking at the criminal justice system in this country and understanding society's role in creating the prison industrial complex, right? And creating and and creating criminal behavior, right? Hey, if you're if you're hungry. And you've got one parent who's working 12 hours a day and you were abandoned by another parent and you're one of five children and there's not enough food on the table and you're living in the ghetto, you're going to do whatever you need to do to get money. 
Right. Yeah. So this is what I'm this is what I'm talking about in terms of society's role in leading people toward criminality. Yeah, where people feel like they have no choice in regards to their options are, are limited. And if your school system is underfunded and all these types of things, your your options are limited. And so, yeah. and again, not making excuses. At some point, you do have to take responsibility, right? You have to take responsibility. Okay, I did this thing because at a younger age, I felt like I had no other choice. And so you're helping these guys kind of come to terms with all of this stuff, basically. And it's it's pretty complex. There's not it's not a simple answer, really. You're definitely, definitely. So I was kind of leading into as well as I was curious, what are you what are you guys doing for yourselves, yourselves and other teachers in regards to dealing with <laughs> the psychological stress, so to speak, of going into prisons on a regular basis and interacting with people in an oppressive environment. What's that? Yeah. What are you guys doing for yourselves in order to kind of come back around, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Well, we put a major emphasis on um, maintaining your own practice. Mm-hmm. That. If you don't have if you don't have a committed practice, this is the way that I put it. If you don't have a committed practice, you're toast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you're 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 done. You know you you have to you you have to walk your talk. Okay. You have to you have you have to have a committed practice. You have to have a practice where you are moving stuff through you, and you understand how important it is to have tools to center yourself on a regular basis. And are you finding um, any of the people moving through your program who are becoming trainers, are there any uh, ex-victims um, or as well as ex-perpetrators, you know, ex-incarcerated people now becoming trainers in your system? A lot of A lot of the people, traditionally a lot of the people who get involved have been impacted by crime be it um they've experienced a family member or a friend who has been impacted by crime Mm -hmm. uh people who may be overcoming addiction and became yoga teachers and got the first-hand value of how yoga helped them or is helping them recover from their addiction um, so I would say the majority of our, and we call, we call our teachers facilitators because we would, once again, as soon as you put out the word teacher, you put yourself above Okay. a, a facilitator is somebody who facilitates a process. Nice. More of so an we like to, Yeah. So we like to use the word facilitator. Okay. Um, we are beginning to get more and more people who had formerly been incarcerated and have embraced the yoga practice who are taking our training. And we also are now, Prison Yoga Project also offers a 200-hour Yoga Alliance certified training. And how would somebody who's interested in any of your programs go about getting a hold of you guys? 
So they go on our website, which is prisonyoga.org, and go to the trainings link. And all the trainings are listed on the trainings link. Okay. And so is there yeah. a, is there certain steps in regards to their training? And do you do you want to do the 200-hour course first? Like what are the steps in regards to getting Yeah. There? So if you're already a certified yoga teacher, then the next step would be you would take what we call our foundational training. Okay. Which is a which is a 24-hour training that is online and it includes six hours of workshops of of uh, uh, virtual workshops and uh, that foundational training is like value added to whatever kind of background you have as a yoga teacher and it really dives into uh, an introduction to social justice to the criminal to the uh, prison industrial complex i mean the first two or three sections there's six sections to it we don't even get to yoga until the third section okay so uh the foundational training for people who are already yoga teachers is is the key if you are not a yoga teacher but you're interested in becoming a yoga teacher then our 200-hour training goes deeply into a lot of these issues. And then the step beyond that would be to take the foundational training. Okay. Well, James, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I love what you do. I've loved it for a long time. Um, if anybody wants to get a hold of James or donate or shop for the DVDs or CDs or buy books for uh, prisoners, you can do that at prisonyoga.org. Um, and I'm sure James will be glad to help you. Uh, James, thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening, and I hope I get a chance to talk to you again soon. Aaron, thank you so kindly for this opportunity. I really appreciate your support.